This week, we're taking issue with election results from Boston City Hall to battleground states like Ohio, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Kentucky. And we'll also talk about the third GOP primary debate down in Miami. I'm Corey. I'm Sue. I'm Matt. And this is Taking Issue. Our nation was born here, not with a whimper, but with the spark of revolution. One more indictment, and this election is closed out. That's what democracy is. It's a choice of the people, by the people, and for the people. All right, welcome into another edition of Taking Issue. We appreciate you spending your, or part of your day with us, we should say. Uh, as you can see, we are on the road once again. And by on the road, I'm at home. They're in the newsroom. <laughs> uh, we had a little logistical issue with somebody getting back from Miami, I guess enjoying too many uh, margaritas and, and whatnot. Mojitos. Will. I, I blame Delta Airlines. They, they threw go. off the whole schedule for us yeah, yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Uh, as you know, that is uh, NBC 10 Boston political reporter Matt Pritchard. Also joining us, NBC 10 Boston political analyst, commentator, my ad issue co-host, Sue O'Connell. Guys, let's start with the big stories of the week, and there were kind of, you know, three of them. Uh, let's start locally, though, in Boston. Uh, before we get to actually who won, I'm going to give Sue a chance to see if she wants to rant about voter turnout. How yeah. are things looking, Sue? What, what did it look like on Tuesday night? It was terrible again. And um, I, I haven't even dug in to exactly see what the percentage of turnout is. But, you know, I, I, I'm of two thoughts on this, uh, Corey and Matt. One is it's really not that hard to vote in the city uh, in Boston. Um, you can get early voting. You can go do it on a, a earlier than Tuesday. Mail-in voting. Uh, and while I say this, I have to acknowledge that two-thirds of my household didn't vote, right? Even though we had to walk across a parking lot to get to Roxbury Community College to vote. So having acknowledged the low turnout and the lack of enthusiasm, uh, I think it's also time to look at Boston and some of these other elections. Um, and when you're in Worcester or Revere or in Quincy, where you have a mayor's race that really brings out the, the voters. Uh, in Boston, you only had the city council race. There were no questions. There were no state, there were a couple of state reps on ballots around, but not here. We need, I think, to move these municipal elections to correspond with either the federal elections every two years or with the mayor's race every two years, because it's just not fair. We're gonna end up at the end of, of this year, going into 2024 with a city council that only maybe 14 or 15 percent of eligible Boston voters picked, okay? Now, I know there aren't that many things that the city council can do, but in the end, when we talk about how you feel about your city, the minority of people concerned here are the ones that are picking. And, and look, at, we're going to talk in a bit about what a progressive slate of winners progressive mayor Michelle Wu has, and then there's going to be a bunch of people complaining about it. But I don't want to hear from you if you didn't vote, especially if someone complains to me on Twitter and I find out who you are, I'm going to check the rolls. And if you didn't vote, I'm, I'm going to tell everybody. How's that? And for two people who sit very close to Sue, we don't want to hear Sue complaining about <laughs> no. people complaining about city council elections who didn't vote. No, uh, Matt, you were, Matt, you were on this trail uh, a lot leading up to the vote. Uh, anything su anything surprise you about the the candidates who ultimately won won the job who you interviewed? No, not necessarily. I mean, I think the preliminary elections in September were sort of showed us where we wound up. I mean, Enrique Pepin, uh, Ben Weber, Henry Santana, you name these names. Those are the people that uh, won in their preliminary elections. They also had big backing by Michelle Wu and 
found their way into city council. John Fitzgerald uh, is another that won his preliminary election, and that proved to be the case uh, come November. They were all really confident heading into Election Day as well as I talked with them. You know, they felt like, you know, they had a, a good mandate from the voters from September that they thought that they could take forward into the general election. So, you know, they moved in confident, but they kept door knocking and it worked out for them. You know, I was at multiple polling locations throughout the day, too, and, and that was sort of you could kind of tell where it was headed based off the voters that were coming in and out telling me who they were planning on voting for and going over the issues that they were concerned with, which seemed to sort of line up with those frontrunner candidates as well. And just so we can level set for everybody, so in, in District 3, where Frank Baker decided not to seek re-election, as, as Sue mentioned, John Fitzgerald won. Enrique Pepin is the new counselor for District 5. He defeated Jose Ruiz. In District 6, you have Ben Weber, who defeated William King. That was Kendra Lara's old seat. Of course, everybody yep. knows what happened to her over the summer. Uh, Tanya Fernandez-Anderson held on uh, to her District 7 seat, and Sharon Durkin held on to her District 8 seat. Let's get back to the, the at-large, because those were kind of the races that, yep. that everybody was watching because they are at-large. Um, Ruth Z. Lujian, and Sue, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, and I feel terrible for that uh, because I've been here for so long. Um, Aaron Murphy, uh, Julia Mejia, and newcomer Henry Santana all coming home with the wins. Sue, I want to I ask you as somebody who's been here, is there, because I, I saw Ruth Z. post about this on Twitter, yep. Yep. is there any sort of additional political capital capital one has on the Boston City Council if they are the at-large candidate that gets the most votes? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the most obvious things is if the mayor vacates the position for any reason, the uh, city council president becomes acting mayor. That's what happened to Mayor Tom Menino when Ray Flynn left, and then Tom Menino ran for office. Uh, we remember Kim Janey last year. She was mayor for a time uh, before she ran when Marty Walsh left because she was city council president. So it does put you in a position to become mayor if for some reason Mayor Wu doesn't uh, finish her term. There's no indication. I know there's a lot of rumors out there, uh, but there's no indication that Michelle Wu is not intending on finishing her full term. Term. And also there's um, the leadership and the, the attention that we will pay to the, the, the president of a city council. Uh, and there's the deals that they can cut. One of the things that Michelle Wu did when she was city council president, uh, in order to get to city council president, she cut a deal with then um, councillor Bill Lenehan, who represented South Boston and parts of the South End. Uh, he was a conservative Boston conservative, uh, and some people were upset that Michelle Wu had worked with him so that she could succeed him and become president. But of course, this is obviously one of the ways that Michelle has been successful in negotiating and cutting deals and um, coming to agreement with people that may be perceived as not exactly her ideological cousins. So it's a really important position, and it does allow you a lot of face time on the media. And you know, Ruth is a, uh, Ruth Z is an incredibly talented and capable. Uh, elected official and person, so uh, the sky's the limit, I think, for her on this. Is there a chance then that we that, that, that she ultimately tries to become council president? Who? Uh, Ruthie? Ruth. Oh yeah. yeah, she's definitely. Yeah. Uh, you you wouldn't announce. Um, the funny thing about this uh, is, unless there's a, a heated race, you don't announce that you're you're intending on doing it unless you actually can win it. <laughs> so it's unlike unlike the House of Representatives, you actually say you're going to run and expect that you're going to win.
Yeah, well, and we're actually going to try and speak with Ruzi. We're taping this on Friday, and we're going to try and speak with her today about that. Uh, she came out on Thursday and said she has the votes to be council president. And so hopefully we get some insight from her today and air that tonight on NBC10 Boston. Whenever you're listening to this, it'll be online. So it'll be interesting to hear kind of what her priorities are as she moves into that role in 2024, especially when we consider just how sort of dysfunctional this council has been over the last few years and contentious in terms of, of tackling major issues. Can Rootsy sort of be that unifier? You know, maybe Sue can mention a few different issues where she's, you know, helped out in that way. I know, I think redistricting was one where she sort of greased the wheels and allowed conversation to happen. Is that right, Sue? Yeah, I mean, Rootsy was uh, crucial in the redistricting uh, that went to lawsuit uh, last year. Uh, so she was crucial in doing that. You know, there's also the nuts and bolts. We, uh, Corey, had talked to um, uh, Ed Flynn, the, the current president, and many counselors have shared with me their distress at how a lot of counselors aren't showing up on time. It's hard to get a quorum. A lot of work isn't getting done in the council that they think should be done. Uh, and Ed Flynn, who expressed to us that, you know, he's a Navy guy and he's an administrator and he's been in the parole world. He can't believe he can't get this done. New faces there, so perhaps this will be an opportunity for them to actually achieve some things as opposed to some of the fighting that's been happening. Is this, is this going to be a lame duck council until the other counselors are sworn in? Because I've, I've had conversations with you, Sue, and you, you made it seem, and correct me if I'm wrong, that they try to get stuff done before yeah. they leave. Yeah, I mean, even um, Kendra Lara and uh, um, Arroyo have been uh, working away, and there are real problems. This uh, 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 the migrant problem that we're facing mm -hmm. in the state is all, and the mass and caste problem continues, and all the counselors are still working on those problems. Baker and Flaherty, uh, all still very engaged, and they'll be engaged until the end of the year. Uh, and then I guess last thing on this, has the dynamic changed? We, we talk so much about this generational divide that's on the council. We talk about the, the racial and ethnic divide that's on the council, the progressive, liberal, conservative divide, however you want to couch it. Do we see this divide only growing um, or maybe regressing a little bit back towards, towards the mean where everybody is kind of ideologically somewhat on the same page? Well, and let me jump in first, Sue, because you'll have much more insight to provide since you've been here so much longer than me. But, you know, when you're losing a Frank Baker and a Mike Flaherty and, and these sort of mainstays of the council, I would imagine that change is kind of inevitable here. I mean, we're moving into these new counselors, this fresh blood that's coming in, two incumbents leaving as well forcefully by voters. And so no matter what, we're going to be seeing a council with different dynamics and different priorities. I just wonder if, again, because this reputation has started to build that they can't get anything done, I wonder if they're going to have to basically kind of come together and find some unity to try and turn the tides and the narrative that maybe Bostonians are feeling when they look at City Hall and the way work is done. And, and part of it, too, is the expertise and the experience that they bring. I mean, even Kendra Lara expressed to me how she worked with Frank Baker on a number of things. I've talked to uh, Anissa Sabi-George, who was on at issue with us, talking about... Um, and she's obviously a former city councilor, how before COVID, they used to go out afterwards. They actually used to socialize. They would have to come in, not do remote as often as they were doing, obviously, during COVID. So I would say with this, this new, new number of, of uh, councilors on the council, with uh, COVID having receded, will they be able to build a camaraderie and a common goal together as people rather than just faces on a screen, which helps to diminish some of the divisions that just naturally happen, unfortunately, with people. So we'll see what happens. We'll check in about March.
And, and let me just say this too, as I've talked with all of these different counselors as well, you know, as, as reporters, we talk about the priorities, you know, and, and the politics of it all, but we also get a sense of who these people are when we talk to them. Everyone I spoke to, the people who actually won, and, and by the way, many of their opponents as well, seem to have a really sort of slow pulse and, and a good demeanor about them. We'll see what happens when they actually get into a position of power and they're actually sitting on city council. But you would have to hope at least that that slow pulse would carry over and sort of create that conversation that I think a lot of Bostonians are looking for. And I would just add one more thing. You know, it is Michelle Wu's midterm election, right? So she is two years left on her, uh, her, her uh, uh, stint as mayor. So if someone is going to be running against her, they're going to start running, I'd say, by January. If that someone is coming from the city council, you can imagine they're going to be churning things up because they will be in opposition to the things that Michelle Wu and some of these new councillors who are pegged as progressives are going to try and get done. Did you, while you guys were out there, did you ever, I never really got the sense that anybody on either in the at-large races or within the district races really tried to paint one candidate as a Michelle Wu candidate, that they tried to kind of tie tie her around their neck in order to, to, to tell voters, oh, you may want to vote for that person. Is that, is that a correct characterization? It really didn't seem like this election was any sort of, because you mentioned this is her midterm election, and you, you, we, I think we're kind of naturally and instinctively trained to think about it being the sort of referendum on the party yeah. or person in power. That really doesn't seem like that was the case here. We've pretty much had one flavor of candidates, Corey. Um, I know we're in Massachusetts and in Boston, and it's not Democrats or Republicans. They're all, it's, it's, an, it's a non-party race, but we kind of had vanilla, golden vanilla, and the other kind of vanilla. So when you were choosing between these candidates, uh, it was somewhat of a difference without a distinction um, that in the competitive races. I mean, there were obviously some other candidates that were uh, more conservative, but uh, no, it wasn't really a mandate on um, rejecting Michelle Wu, but... This was also an expression of her power, um, and I referenced Tom Menino again because Michelle Wu actually uh, started her political career in the Menino administration, and Tom Menino was the type of guy that whatever the number of signatures you have to get in order to get on the ballot, even though he had been in office forever, he always made sure he had three or four times the number of signatures to prove how powerful he was and how he could get people to go out and stand in the rain and ask people to sign, even though they were well past the number needed. So I think Michelle Wu uh, was just sort of demonstrating her ability to get these candidates who she backed, she backed to, but most of them are in her wheelhouse uh, to show that she can get folks elected also as a show of power if she chooses to run for re-election. All right, we're going to have much more on, on the Boston City Council elections this Sunday morning on at issue. We've got uh, the District 6 winner, Ben Weber, and Henry Santana, the new at-large councilman, that are going to be joining uh, Sue and I at, at the roundtable to discuss what comes next uh, for these new council members. Uh, Boston, not the only place where elections were going on uh, this past week. A big night on Tuesday in, in states across the country, from state houses to, to different referendums on ballots. And at the end of the day, guys, just like we saw in the midterms, even though Republicans got the House, a big night for Democrats. We'll go into the individual races, but I just want to get, Matt, we'll start with you, your sense on, on what we saw Tuesday night. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if you're a Republican right now, this is tough headwinds moving in to 2024. We're a year out from the presidential election, and you continue to see these sort of losses up and down 
the ballot, whether it is a candidate or whether it's an issue. I know we're going to dig into it in a second, but that abortion issue in Ohio, having voters sort of, you know, codify that into their constitution, absolutely devastating, I think, uh, for Republicans and pro-life advocates. So it's rough out there for Republicans at the moment. It's just a question of how do they pivot in the next 12 months as we get closer and closer to the presidential election. Sue? There'll be no pivoting. They're not going to be able to pivot. I mean, look, at this is one of those great human moments of example of what it takes to change behavior, right? You can tell people over and over and over again, if Republicans get elected, they're going to turn back row. And people go, no, that could never happen. That could never happen. Or if we don't change our behavior, the climate crisis is going to be here. And then suddenly it is, right? You notice very few people doubt either one of those things anymore. So uh, I know that we look at polls a lot, but... I, there are a big majority section of Americans who have clearly gotten slapped in the nose knowing that Roe v. Wade got overturned, and they are going to vote for abortion access and abortion rights in every single race that they can, whether they are polled, whether they are Democrats or Republicans or independents. And uh, I, I think that, this, that the Republicans have an exceptionally difficult job winning elections moving forward because what the Democrats were warning people would happen, and Republicans said it wouldn't because it was settled law, actually happened. And it's fresh, and every single state we see enshrining the right to access to abortion, changing their state constitutions, which is difficult to do. I mean, you know, that's the other part of this. It's not easy to, to get people to understand that. Um, I think the, the Republicans are in deep trouble. So here, here's what, what, we, what we saw, or at least what, what caught our attention uh, on, on that Tuesday election night. As Matt mentioned, in Ohio, voters enshrined abortion protections into the state constitution. In Kentucky, you had Governor Andy Beshear, the incumbent governor, um, beat Daniel Cameron, the AG there in Kentucky, who sort of rose to notoriety, you might say, uh, in the Breonna Taylor um, police shooting. Um, so Bashir won there. Uh, and then you also had... Uh, Virginia, uh, the House and the Senate, both flipping to the Democrats. The going theory was that they were probably going to win the Senate, but a big surprise was that they were able to take the House when Virginia has a very, well, I say very, before I guess Tuesday, you might say, very popular uh, Republican governor in Glenn Youngkin, somebody who had been floated as sort of this white knight in a red vest uh, to come in to the, to the final stage of the 2024 election and be that Trump alternative. The Republicans did notch a win, um, win in air quotes, because I guess it would be hard to beat an incumbent governor in Mississippi, uh, but Tate Reeves did win that election. Uh, I want to talk about the, the polling leading up, because there was, there was the quote-unquote horrible New York Times poll that showed Biden was losing in a number of battleground states uh, to Trump, who still is the presumptive nominee at this point, because nobody seems to be able to take him down. But I just wonder, when you look at those polls and then you actually look at the results and just how contrasting they are with a similar situation in 2022, at this point, is, is it about just those issues in those states, abortion being so big, um, to, to the point where voters say, I don't care if I dislike Biden, this is my issue, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vote for the party that is, is where my head is at ideologically. Um, or, or is this just simply, you know, polls, polls can be wrong from time to time. I, so, I always, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. no you go. Yeah. Okay. I was just going to say, I mean, 
at the end of the day, polling is just calling voters and asking them what they think, presumptive voters or whatever it might be in that particular poll, and they're just going to say, sort of shoot from the hip on what they think at that moment. But when you actually get into a voting booth, what do you do when that ballot is in front of you? And so when we have elections like we had on Tuesday, we have hard evidence. This is what voters actually did in these different states. And Republicans took a lot of losses. And that is what happens. That Those are the facts of the matter. So the polling is great and everything. And it kind of gives us, I think, a good perspective and allows everyone to kind of go, OK, maybe we're moving in this direction or maybe we're moving in this direction. But when you actually get hard voting data, you really have to pay attention to that because that actually shows you where voters are, where they're feeling about these really high profile issues. And so certainly something, you know, I guess I've made my point is that, you know, polling is great and we take a look at it and it's important in terms of the conversation. But voting is the thing that actually brings forward the facts. And Corey, when we have our uh, separate podcast where you and I discuss the polls at length uh, over our desk, um, you know, I'm sure that'll be riveting for people at home. But look, at polls are, to Matt's point, polls are snapshots, right, of what is happening right now. And by the time we read them, they've already kind of evolved. This poll <laughs> that was done four years ago um, uh, also showed uh, Donald Trump. It showed Ob Barack Obama at this point. It showed George W. Bush at this point in basically the same position that Biden was in. It is an opportunity for people who are in the base to express their unhappiness with what their president, their party has done, which they have done. It also, even though it was a head-to-head -head poll, um, Trump did just as badly compared to where he was uh, last time in this poll as Biden did. So what we learned from this poll is Biden is too old for a lot of, of people. They wish they had another choice. And any choice of Democrat, the unknown Democrat, they'll vote for. So they're voting for Democratic policies and they want to express their unhappiness with Biden being the candidate, which does not mean they're not going to vote for him uh, when it comes to uh, November. So those are the things you have to take into account when you're, you're looking at these poll uh, figures and, and results. And uh, it's just a way to express that they're, they're unhappiness. Now, Democrats are learning that they have to be more like Republicans. If you, if you believe in your candidate or your candidate's party, you have to hold your nose and, and don't get upset. You get what you get and don't get upset and vote for the candidate. We'll see if they're able to do that. And, and, and this, go, ahead, go ahead, Matt. I was just going to say, I mean, out there speaking with voters, though, it's been fascinating to hear how some of them have told me that they are planning on sitting out in 2024 and not voting because they're so fed up with both choices uh, that are in front of them for the White House. I just find that fascinating because, to Sue's point, you know, you got to hold your nose. you got to vote for the person who you think will do the best job. But at this point, are Americans just so fed up with both choices that it's not going to be worth their time to go out and vote? Well, now they, they have Jill, Jill Stein now. They can vote for Jill Stein. Yeah, right. that, that's fascinating to me, Matt, because any time that I hear a, a voter say, well, I'm just going to sit out, I, part of me just wants to posit to them a few things like, okay, so then let's say, let's say Trump wins then. You, you set out Trump wins and we get a 15-week federal abortion ban. Would that would that bother you? Yes or no? Um, you know, let's say let's say Biden wins and we make a, a, just a huge lurch to the left. Would that bother you? Yes or no? And I got it. I got to think it would. But I guess if somebody's willing to sort of sit out an election, then maybe they're just not impacted by things a president or, or Congress does day to day because they're not just sitting out a presidential election. I guess they, they've also got Congress people that that they've got to vote for. Um, as well, but but that's that's a that's a story for another day. I think I think a I think the polling conversation is is, a, is an interesting one. Uh, call me cynical, but just since 2016, 
I've, when I, whenever I look at polls, I just sort of say, okay, but who did they really talk to? And you can go Really? You say that? I never hear you say that. <laughs> you can go through cross tabs, and, and, <laughs> and, and at, at this point, just given what we've seen, and this leads to my next point, given what we've seen, anytime I see a poll, I, I ask Sue, how many people under 35 did they talk to? Um, because that's where this really seems uh, where, where 2024 is headed, just like we saw in 2022. Gen Z is here. As much as we want to, to moan and whine about the way that they do things or the way that they go about their lives, they're here, they care, they're, they're, they're speaking up for issues that matter to them, and issues like abortion and climate are going to be on the ballot in 2024. And the sort of going theory that I heard after Tuesday night was even when abortion wasn't on the ballot, Democrats have been decent at tying the issue to whatever Republican candidate is running. So-and-so would just be a, a rubber stamp for an abortion ban uh, at, at the federal level. Vote for me. Even if, even if abortion wasn't on, on, the, uh, on the ballot, or even if they are in, in a state that protects abortion rights. But getting back to the young voter uh, point of, of Tuesday night, uh, and Sue and I have talked about this in the past, there, there was an article that came out months ago that talked about how Republicans are just getting destroyed on college campuses uh, across the country. And, and we know that the culture wars are out there and college campuses are, 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 are the battleground for a lot of this stuff. Um, but just, just looking at folks who, who, who follow this stuff uh, for, for a living, you know, places like University of Mary Washington, College of William and Mary, uh, Newport University, I mean, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of percentage points higher than what they were compared to, to 21 and, and to 2020. Sue, do you get the sense that 2024, maybe you can talk about inflation, you can talk about the border all you want. It's going to be who, who, who gets young voters to turn out for them. Yeah I, mean, yeah, I think more specifically, Corey, for the Democrats, and I, I think that part of, if we look at that poll uh, and, and, and the Biden numbers and, and look at it more objectively, like it doesn't mean he's going to lose, but where, where are the Democrats fighting? The Democrats have to, to win in every single constituency that usually votes for them in order for Biden to win, and I would imagine for them to grab a seat or two in, at the House or more or, or seats uh, in the Senate. Now that the, you know, the mansion seat is gone, but is there another place where they can go to, to pick that up? Uh, and um, the younger voters are always, I mean, I know I hate saying it, but you can never count on them. You don't know what the driving force is going to be. Um, and if they're, if they're going to be able to relate that to actually getting the vote out. So in order for Biden to win and the Democrats to win, he has to hold uh, the, the black and brown vote. He has to stop the uh, Latino and Hispanic uh, recession that Democrats are, are experiencing, and they have to keep young people engaged. Uh, and I think a lesson I learned, you know, one of the many ways that I've been wrong over the years is I was so dismissive of Bernie Sanders' campaign early on, and, you know, he was able to energize young voters in a way that other candidates had not. So they have to the, the, the Republicans are going to have a hard time with young people. The Democrats can do it, but they're really going to have to connect with them on issues like abortion and climate um, that I think is going to be a challenge for them. Yeah, and I think Republicans in particular need to just reframe how they're going at different issues. And maybe this sort of leads us into the debate conversation, which is the last topic, which is just that certain candidates are starting to phrase topics differently. Nikki Haley talking about abortion a little bit differently, putting sort of this, 
you know, we can compromise, we can find areas where we can agree on it. If Republicans can do that in a number of different areas, maybe young voters will give them a better look because I'm sure young voters are concerned with the amount, you know, of money that's piling up in the national debt and that sort of thing, which Republicans have always, at least the perception is, is that they're concerned about the debt limit and making sure that, you know, the nation's debt is at a reasonable level. And so, you know, if Republicans can start to steer more in the direction of younger voters on these different topics, whether it's climate, whether it's abortion, maybe they can start to make those inroads. But I think, you know, first and foremost is finding a new candidate other than Donald Trump that people can at least, you know, think about voting for, become an option for younger voters, for Hispanic voters and for black voters as well. They're going to have to do something because I think you look at some of the headwinds that they're, that they're facing, especially when it comes to women. After Roe uh, what was struck down, we saw what that did for, for that suburban woman, women voting block who may not be as liberal or progressive uh, as one may think. But when it comes to that abortion issue, that is, that is something that is important that can sway their votes. But then just going back to the younger conversation, there was a new AEI survey um, that says teenagers, young voters are polarized by gender um, to the point where, and let me, let me make sure I, I have this right, Gen Z women are disproportionately liberal and likely to be and, and likely to report being disrespected by men, which was another part of the survey. Says Gen Z men are much less likely uh, than millennial, millennials to say that they are uh, that they're feminists, but also that there is a huge registration gap between them and, and the parties that, that they vote for, with with younger women being tending to be more liberal. I got to think a Democrat looks at that and says, okay, if we can sort of translate the inroads that we've made with suburban women and continue to do that on the, the younger generation side, then, then, then maybe we can pull out another you know, victory in 2024 like we did in 2022. And I say victory in air quotes, because yes, I know the House did ultimately go to Republicans, but there was no red wave. And a big part of that was, was Gen Z. All right, so let's move on to, the, to our final topic. Um, as you can see, um, for those of you who are watching this podcast, Matt is nice and tan from his time. <laughs> Uh, in, in South Beach covering the third GOP primary debate, uh, there were, were barbs, there were jabs, there were jokes, there were bad jokes. Uh, just, just what did you all, we'll start at the, just this sort of macro level view, what did you think of the third debate? Did anybody do anything to help themselves get a little bit closer to the front runner who was not on stage yet again, Donald Trump? Matt? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought there was more substance in this one. Uh, out of all the three, I think this is the one where we got into the topics more, and maybe that's because the topics sort of demanded substance. I mean, this is the first debate since the war uh, in Israel with Hamas has broken out. So, you know, and then obviously coming right off the heels of Election Day on Tuesday with abortion in Ohio and a bunch of other topics as well. So there was an opportunity for substance for many of these candidates to sort of tackle. You know, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, I thought, both had pretty good moments. I think Nikki Haley did what she has been doing, which continues to sort of surge forward and surge more into that second spot. The other three candidates on the stage, Vivek Ramaswamy, Tim Scott, uh, as well as, um, and I'm forgetting the last one all of a sudden, but, um, uh, and, and Chris Christie, thank you. The other three of them, I thought they tried to make En-ROADS. I don't think it was fully successful. I thought Vivek Ramaswamy was just sort of showboating at many points. Uh, Tim Scott just never really got off the ground. Chris Christie, I thought, had some moments of substance, but is he ever going to be able to turn over that Trump voting base? I don't think so. And so I think we're kind of where we were when we started the night. And, uh, you know, it's, Corey, it's funny, Corey, we watch uh, the debate within 24 hours. We either watch it live, we go to it, or we watch it 
first thing the next morning and then Corey yells things out. I don't know what he's watching over there. He just starts yelling things. Um, but, um, you know, the rest of the real world actually watches the clips over a number of days, right? So here we are on Friday and um, last night people, real people in my life were talking about the debate and Nikki Haley keeps coming up and Nikki Haley comes up um, from people who are maybe Democrats, we are Massachusetts, but you know, can see themselves voting for a Charlie Baker or voting for a Bill Weld or uh, James Swift. And they see Nikki Haley in that way. And if, uh, as, as you, you've both pointed out, Nikki Haley has been really carefully talking about abortion in the way that I think most of us do when we're at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Like, I appreciate your point of view. I see where you're coming from, but here's what my side is. And she's been doing that. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see a real, a, a real jump up in the polls for Nikki Haley uh, at the next polling. Um, I think that there is now a strategy and a path for her to win uh, ahead, to move ahead in New Hampshire. And by win, I mean like the Bill Clinton win, like he didn't really win New Hampshire, but he did really well and enough to um, really propel him into the rest of the primaries. I have no idea what's happening in Iowa, but I think Nikki Haley, she doesn't have to peel voters away from Donald Trump. She only has to peel voters away from the rest of those folks that were on stage or were not on stage. And I think there's a possibility for her to do that. All right, so obviously there were a number of moments that make the rounds on social media, you know, in the newsroom where we talk about it. Uh, and I think one of the bigger moments of the night was uh, Vivek Ramaswamy going at Nikki Haley. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't even remember what, what the issue was, which is, the, the, I guess, the, the sad part, because when you think about these viral moments, you don't really remember the context. Uh, but I do know it was about Nikki Haley's heels, which we have heard her talk about from time to time on the trail, but this is what, uh, this is the back and forth between her and uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. Let's take a listen. Do you want a leader from a different generation who's gonna put this country first, or do you want Dick Cheney in three inch heels? I'd first like to say they're five inch heels, and I don't wear them unless you can run in them. Um, well, we got two the, of you on stage. The second there, thing so. that I will say is, I wear heels, they're not for a fashion statement, they're for ammunition. She had me and you have to run. I don't know I'm not exactly means. sure what the ammunition line was was, was yeah. about. Um, I've, I've said this to a few people, her comebacks sound good on the first listen, but if you listen to them two or three <laughs> times, you kind of go, what are you trying to say specifically? You know what I mean? It doesn't make a whole Matt, lot of sense. Matt, you've heard, her, you've heard her talk about her heels on the stump before. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's not, it wasn't a new line, but you know, lost in all of this. And I, I thought, I thought sadly, it was a bit of a low blow for Vivek. Yeah, but sadly um, it was lost. What was, la what was lost was he wasn't just making the heels dig about Nikki Haley. He yeah. was also making it about Ron DeSantis, <laughs> whether or not yeah. he has heel lifts in his boots. Um, but that, that was lost, um, you know, in, in, in the back and forth of it all. But I think that was one of those moments, um, especially for, especially for women. Um, where they, they they look at a Nikki Haley and say she's not going to take any BS from anybody. No, especially, and I, you know, it, especially someone who who you get the sense on that stage he is the least liked of all of those GOP candidates among the candidates. I mean, luckily he leans into that. I mean, he doesn't worry about being liked clearly. But you know, his point about trying to be the new generation. Uh, I, you know, I don't necessarily think it was sexist for him to reference her heels, especially since she references it all the time. But then it opens him up to be charged with sexism, right? And and it's like, why make it worse? Just say, I'm young. I'm not going to be like Dick Cheney. If you would think the two of them are like Dick Cheney, just say it. It just, it's just, Vivek is just, he's just really, uh, 
just irritating and he doesn't I never leave watching him thinking oh I like him a little bit better well would you would you would you maybe say you feel a little bit icky when you watch Vivek Ramaswamy and I, I asked that because scummy how about scummy yeah, and, yeah scummy. To, and, and to that and to that point let's uh, let's hear another moment where Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy went at it in the last debate she made fun of me for actually joining TikTok while her own daughter was actually using the app for a long time so you might want to take care of your family first leave my daughter out of your, your voice adult daughter the next generation of Americans are using it and that's actually the point you have her supporters crapping her up that's fine here's the truth you're just the easy scum. Answer is <laughs> yeah. So, so, so it. many people, scum. so many people said to me that, you know, because we all know in every debate, everybody wants, all the candidates want to get a viral moment and they rehearse them and they talk with them. And this was just totally unexpected, totally authentic. And almost every parent who is in the public eye uh, understands that was a real mama bear response to, you know, uh, every, if you could control your kids when you're running for office or you're an elected official, congratulations, it's almost impossible to do. So it actually boosted um, Haley, again, a self-inflicted wound by Vivek. Uh, people really came away getting a sense of who she was as a person and how strong she would be. And we talk about this all the time about the Donald Trump problem. If they can't stand up to Donald Trump, how are they going to stand up to China? How are they going to stand up for Russia? How are they going to stand up for you? And she demonstrated how she would stand up for someone she loves. So therefore, would she, she, she stand up that way for American citizens? I mean, and, and look, Vivek did what he said he was going to do. He came into the debate saying he was going to be unhinged. That's what he did. He came in and he tried to ruffle feathers and try and create conversation. The guy's polling at 4% in both Iowa and New Hampshire and has been for a really long time. He's trying to rekindle that first debate fire that he had, and it just isn't happening. Because I think, to your point, both of you, that you know people are just sort of tired of the act, and it's clear that no one else on the stage likes him. And if you can't even make the other Republicans around you like you, uh, you know, do you have any business running for president of the United States? So uh, another, um, this was a, a debate that was that, that centered on on foreign policy a lot, um, and I made sort of a supercut of what, what I thought was somewhat, not may, maybe dark is the wrong word, but just somewhat very blunt uh, talk, which, which, look, voters want you to be honest with them, that, that, that's fine. Um, but I, there, were part of, there were parts of the debate where I just walked away thinking, are we going to war tomorrow? Or, are, you know, just, is this gonna be, you know, on day one where we're, we're launching missiles towards Iran? Um, and that, and that, I was led to that point during their discussion on Israel and Hamas. And the question was, what would you say to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu if you were president and Israel was launching this offensive uh, against Gaza? Here's just sort of a supercut of what, of what the candidates had to say. I would be telling Bibi, finish the job once and for all with these butchers, Hamas. The first thing I said to him when it happened was I said, finish them. Finish them. I would tell him to smoke those terrorists on his southern border. Wipe Hamas off of the map. America is here, no matter what it is you need at any time, to preserve the state of Israel. So, wipe them off the map. Finish these butchers. Finish them. It's not, it was like I was watching the, uh, uh, the end of a fight on Mortal Kombat, you know, the old video game. Um, did that surprise you guys? I mean, look, we're, we're used to the GOP talking tough when it comes to, to the military, to, to, to national defense. Um, but to my earlier point, it just, it just, I, I, I listened to that and listened to them talk about Iran, you know, being 
you know, this Israel-Hamas war just being a sort of proxy for the West versus Iran. Um, and it and honestly did seem like these folks are ready to go to war with Iran if they were elected. Am I overreacting? Am I reading that wrong? What, what was your guys' thoughts on it? I mean, I, I, I thought first off is that this is an area where they see traction can be gained. Donald Trump has stepped it in in it on this issue multiple times. And of course, Nikki Haley came out with these finish them lines almost immediately when war broke broke out about a month ago, and she has experience with all of this during her time as UN ambassador. So if you're trying to gain ground on both of those people, this is an issue where maybe, you know, you can sort of match Nikki Haley and sort of stand in opposition to the way Donald Trump has been handling it so far. And so that's an area, a lane where they can travel towards better polling and better numbers as we get closer and closer to primary season. But I think they believe it too. I think everyone you heard said that because they do feel that way. And so, you know, like you said, Corey, talking tough is one thing and actually acting when you have, you know, the Oval Office and everything else at your disposal is completely different. But you can tell that all of them feel very strongly about, you know, supporting Israel in any way, shape or form. And, you know, Corey, just from a political standpoint, from a campaign standpoint, I'm putting aside acknowledging the human cost here, but just... Um, Many Republicans will tell you the reason, or voters will tell you the reason they didn't vote for Hillary Clinton is they thought she was a warmonger, and they thought that Donald Trump would keep us safe um, and keep us out of wars. And that's also why they didn't support John McCain, because they thought Donald Trump would not get us in a war. And they look at the past four years uh, that Trump was uh, president and think that the fact that we weren't engaged in a new war was because Donald Trump was able to keep the world quiet, which is not the case. And then fast forward here, two incidents that are happening internationally, which we don't really have any control over that have been happening for long before uh, even Donald Trump was, was in office and uh, Biden was in office. Uh, you have the Israeli war, the Israeli Hamas war and Ukraine, and suddenly everybody wants to go to war, right? So suddenly the Republican candidates are not only wanting to go to war uh, to, to um, send a message to Hamas, send a message to Iran, send a message to the Middle East. They're also talking about invading Mexico. They're also talking about <laughs> invading Canada. I mean, basically, uh, suddenly the Republican Party has become uh, the candidates, at least, the, 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 the strong men of what they're going to do here. And I also want to point out one thing that really struck me from the hypocrisy of some of the things that those candidates said. We all want to have safe spaces in our schools, our public schools, our colleges, our private universities. Anti-Semitism has been growing in this country and it is a danger and it is terrible. We want to keep our Jewish students safe on campus, but we also want to keep our school students safe from guns, right? So they have the nerve to go up there and um, talk about squashing free speech on campus, which you can agree or disagree with when it comes to people supporting Palestinians and um, seeking a different way of uh, resolving the war and talking about keeping Jewish students safe on campuses, which we all agree should happen, but they never once mentioned school shootings. They never mentioned once keeping guns out of the hands of people who are terrorizing Americans every single day. So um, just to be clear, that was a campaign pitch that they made. And to, to Matt's point, none of it may be true when push comes to shove, but we are in danger in this country from a lot of attacks, and it's usually because of the guns that are on our streets, uh, less than from what's happening in Iran and Israel and uh, with Hamas. Well, and I'm just now thinking too, I mean, Maine didn't even come up. I don't think Not the moderators asked well, they weren't a asked, They weren't asked about, about guns. They weren't yeah, asked which, about, and I, guess, and I guess, look, from, from NBC's standpoint, you, you don't want to necessarily rehash topics that are, that are already talked about, especially when you're having a foreign policy debate. 
But at the same time, sometimes breaking news changes yeah. what, what you're, what you're going to talk about. And, I, and, and, and even from a GOP perspective, this is the party when a mass shooting happens that says, you know, the gun's not the problem, it's the mental health issue. And we saw in Maine that, well, yeah, there was a mental health issue here. Let's talk about it in the context of safer gun laws and, and mental health. And yet it was sort of passed over, or at least, at least the, the subject wasn't, wasn't even, even brought up. Uh, I want to go back to something Sue mentioned, the anti-Semitism on campus. This will be the last clip we, we, we play, then we got to get out of here. Um, here's another sort of supercut of, 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 of multiple candidates talking about the issue of anti-Semitism on campus. Uh, and what they would do about it. We don't quash this with censorship because that creates a worse underbelly. We quell it through leadership by calling it out. These university administrators have lost their way. To allow students to encourage terrorism, mass murder, mass murder and genocide, you should lose your federal funding today, period. Joe Biden should have the Department of Justice on these college campuses and holding the universities accountable for civil rights violations. When you have, you should not have money going to these places. If the KKK were doing this, every college president would be up in arms. This is no different. So, so beyond, beyond what you just heard there, a lot of, a lot of the, the candidates or multiple candidates said, you know, if you're one of these students and you're on a visa, you're going to get deported for exercising your free speech, which is what we sell as Americans to folks who want to come to, to our shores and, and, and get educated. So just, it, it was, I, th I think it was maybe a missed opportunity. And the other thing that you didn't hear at all during that conversation was the humanitarian crisis that's going on right now in, in Gaza and in, in Palestine. And in fact, I think one of the moderators asked, would you support, you know, the, uh, a ceasefire or humanitarian pause? And some of, some of the candidates seemed as if they were, you know, personally insulted um, by the notion that we could, you know, pause a war to get humanitarian aid in. Um, so I think, you know, I'll, I'll end it on this one before we get to our last little topic. Did any, did Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, did any of them do anything to knock Trump off of his perch? No, I, I mean, yeah. I, I don't I mean, think those voters, those voters are not, the, the Trump voters are not leaving Trump. I mean, I think that we have to acknowledge the mass, the, the majority of them are not leaving Trump. So the question is, are they going to get the votes from the other people on that stage? And I think Nikki Haley made some progress on that. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, at least some of the candidates up there, are just waiting to see what happens with these different legal problems that Donald Trump is facing and be ready to swoop in if needed uh, later on in the summer. And it's sad to say that's where we're at, but, but, but I do think that's where most of the candidates are looking. All right, uh, before we go, we're going to introduce a new fun levity inducing segment uh, at the end of, of the podcast uh we're, we're just gonna keep it simple and call it what are you reading what are you watching uh basically this is recommendations suggestions to maybe lighten the mood a little bit from all the politics that we follow or delve even deeper down the rabbit hole into the politics um so i'll, I'll go ahead and start uh, what i'm reading is an article in the new yorker um uh, by robert samuels it was a profile on tim scott and his somewhat um, evolving and to some confusing relationship uh, with race uh, and, and how he was brought up. You heard him mention it a lot during the, uh, during the debate uh, on Wednesday. So if, if you have a chance to read that article, it's, it's, it's fascinating, it's eye-opening, and you get a, more of a sense of who Tim Scott is and, and how he views race given, you know, given his job and his position in the Senate. Uh, and then what I am watching is a show on Netflix called Bodies. If you like a little bit of 
science fiction, a little bit of time travel, a little bit of murder mystery. It's a show that, that you've got to check out. Uh, it's very bingeable. I got through it in like three days. Um, so yeah, that, that's what I'm reading. That's what I'm watching. Matt, what about you? What are you reading? What are you watching? Well, you guys are just going to be so fed up with hearing about my kid that's coming in three weeks. <laughs> no. I, no, I, no. I, I, Never. I, this I, is this is going to move you, Corey, because he already I, shared with I me. Know. So go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, well first off, um, what I'm reading is uh, the Sears Sears Baby Book, I think is what it's called. <laughs> it's like this thick, and it just terrifies you because they're like talking about the most minute possibilities that could happen. But it's good to be preparing. So that's what I'm reading. Um, what I'm watching twofold. The first on the plane down, I watched Elemental by Pixar which is basically a father-daughter story, which literally brought me to tears on the plane. <laughs> that's never happened before, but that's what's <laughs> happening now. So, uh, but it's, it's very exciting. Uh, and then the other thing that I've been watching is there's a movie called Free Solo on uh, Disney Plus. So good. So, so great. Good. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, well worth it. Um, filmmaker, I don't know how they do it, how they capture it, but basically this guy climbs uh, one of the most, you know, prolific rock climbing spots in the United States with no ropes, no safety measures in place, and uh, it's really, really impressive. Sue, what are you reading? What are you watching? Uh, so for reasons uh, too complicated to get into in the podcast, I just reread re -read Narnia, um, oh. which, yes, was uh, a, a good refresher for me, also reminding me that we need to keep our stories dark for the kids because the world is dark, and when we make them all Disneyfied, uh, or make a movie out of them, it doesn't seem quite as bad as it really is. But Narnia was great to read. Enjoyed that. I, I always recommend going back and reading some stuff that you used to read. And then um, my movie, what I'm watching, is Nyad, which was on, is on Netflix, starring Annette Bening and um, Jodie Foster. And that is the story of Diana Nyad, who at age 64 swam 53 hours from Cuba to Key West. I understand there are some questions about how it was done or whether she really did it in the way that would make it a qualified um, uh, swim. But I have to say, it for someone who is incredibly unlikable, which is Diana Nyad, doing something that seems incredibly boring and something that I tried to ignore when she was actually doing the attempts in the news world, it was, by the end, I was cheering for her and it was riveting and Annette Bening was great. And also a uh, interesting point, this is the first openly gay character that Jodie Foster has played. She plays the coach in it, um, Bonnie Stahl. And um, the way that I think Jodie Foster is able to bring her whole self to the character, and I am not one of those people that think that only gay people can play gay people. I just think from an expression of an artist that Jodie Foster is probably giving one of the best performances of her whole self in this movie. So it's it's just, to, to Matt's point, it's um, watching people do things that you don't want to do and you can't believe you they would spend the time to do it. But I'm always encouraged when I'm cheering for an unlikable person. So uh, I, I recommend Nyad and Narnia. I guess it's the ends. Alphabetically, I'm working through things. <laughs> All right. Well, Matt, Sue, thank you so much. We appreciate it as always. And thank you for everyone who's watching, who's listening, who's been joining us these past few weeks. It's been really fun to do these. We'll drop another episode next week. Who knows what we'll be covering, but uh, we'll, we'll make it interesting and we'll make it fun as always. That is it for this week's Taking Issue. Of course, you can see uh, myself, Sue, and Matt Sunday at 11.30 on At Issue right after Meet the Press on NBC10 Boston. But until next week, talk to you later.